This podcast is a co-production of ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts. So when I worked at the Royal Collection Trust, I came across a lot of albums that had his image in there. So that's how I sort of came across his story. And the more you come across it, the more you realise people would have known it and his image is pervasive. I want you to imagine the face of a seven-year-old child. A lot of things are written about how he was a happy child, but when you look at the photographs, he always looks very upset. He's just completely doesn't look happy. He's got dark brown skin and he's wrapped in regal robes that are so big for him that it, it looks more like a blanket he's swaddled in after waking up from a nightmare. He's staring, his face is very... It's very deep. I feel an intense loneliness. In all of his pictures, he is not smiling, he's sad. And he looks confused and in shock. You can tell that tears have been wiped from his eyes and he will not look at you directly. Instead, he gazes at the destruction just beyond the lens with a face that says, what have you done? It is really piercing and it's quite confrontational for that period. And he's surrounded by objects that the British have captured. The treasures of his empire in crates around him. Whenever I think of him, I think of that image surrounded by all of the other loot. He's simultaneously an orphan, a refugee, a prisoner of war. He was passed from person to person, just a mess. We're talking about a boy who left very little behind. Trauma doesn't just come and go. There is a great betrayal that has happened. My name is Mark Fennell, and in the days of the British Empire, things were taken. Artefacts, treasures, and people... Queen Victoria wrote she was aware that he was not happy. At the time, people thought they were saving him, and at the end of the day, Britain didn't know what to do with him. The only picture of the prince where I think he's kind of, like, has a different expression is the picture of his body when he died. So his future was stolen from him. There's the polite version of history you can see in museum plaques. The stories exist, we just have to look for them. It's untold and it's unfinished, unwritten. And no plaque will change that. And then there's the stuff the British stole. He needs to go home. Physically, I am a crime scene and I am also a witness and I am also the investigator. I am the story and I want the story to be questioned, my story. This is the arresting voice of a writer, broadcaster and poet by the name of... Lem Sisse. Do you remember the first poem you wrote? Uh, no, but I remember the feeling that I got when I wrote the poem. And the feeling was one of being in a storm and planting a flag in the mountainside and holding on to it while the storm raged around me. And I wrote that poem that I don't remember <laughs> uh, when I was 12 in a children's home after leaving uh, the people who I believed to me were my parents forever. The story of how Lem Sisse ended up as the man he is today, it really begins in Ethiopia 
My mum came over to England from Ethiopia in the late 60s and she came to study and found herself, unbeknownst to her, pregnant. She was 21 years of age and the school where she was studying needed to get her away. And they sent her to the north of England, the dark north of England. The social worker would come and get those women at their most vulnerable to sign the adoption papers. Many of those women hadn't heard the word adoption before until now. They were barely children themselves, 21, 18, 19. She gives me to the social worker. The social worker gives me to foster parents. I remember I was told that my mother didn't want me. They put me into children's homes at 12 years of age and I lost everybody. And if you want to know how bad that was for me, you have to imagine that your own child at 12 years of age is cut off, guillotined from everything they've ever known and placed in a house full of strangers and moved every year for the next six years in children's homes and then at 17 and a half let go with no explanation and no apology and a birth certificate that said the name Lem Siseon it, my name. So the reason Lemsesay's childhood is important to know is because back in the mid-90s, now a successful writer, Lem heard something that shook him to his core. It was a story. In fact, it was almost like this story was reaching out specifically for Lemsesay. I travelled to Ethiopia for the first time and I met a man who told me first about Prince Alamayhu, who could be said to be the first modern-day fostered child from Ethiopia. Prince Alamayhu has one of the most mysterious and brutal histories I've ever come across making the series. On the one hand, he was famous here in Britain and yet still totally unknowable as a person. Some argue that the British saved his life, others that he was kidnapped, or worse. And yet, this boy, this Ethiopian boy, lies in the same place where Queen Elizabeth II is buried. But the real question is this, how did he get there? And why is he there? We need to know about the boy who is buried in Windsor Castle. We need to know about him because I believe that there is a great betrayal that has happened in the telling of his story. I grew up in Africa, in Kenya and Nigeria, and I've worked on and off in uh, Ethiopia and Egypt and Sudan. Okay, hi, I'm Andrew. I'm a writer based in London, and I've been working for much too long on this book about Prince Alamayu, the Prince and the Plunder. Andrew Heavens is his full name. Forgot to say the last part. And to tell the story of that boy, he's going to have to take you back to a time before Ethiopia was Ethiopia. The 1860s, the age of princes, and the kingdom of Abyssinia. We're talking about the mountainous highlands of Ethiopia that rise thousands and thousands of feet above sea level. It's a rarefied, beautiful, stunning place that you have to see with mountains and gaping valleys ahead of you, everywhere you look. Imagine breathtaking valleys and these sharp crevasses everywhere. And as you tilt your head up to the sky, you see a mountain with its peak 
sliced off, and in its place, the fortress of Magdala. The 1860s, this was the seat of power in the kingdom of Abyssinia. It would have been packed with people from all over, except relatively few British people. And there's a reason for that. We're looking at a period here after Britain had finished dealing with African slavery. That had officially been banned. But before Britain had started taking an interest in African territory. Basically, Britain was in a big emerging power. There were lots of emerging imperial powers. And it was having its first encounters after the end of slavery with various ancient civilizations in Africa. And if you wanted to interact with the kingdom of Abyssinia, you needed to deal with the emperor, Tawadros. I mean, just imagine every film star combined, every charismatic leader. This is a guy who could effortlessly brought people around him from his you know, relatively humble beginnings. He brought up his own militia force. He took on the emperors and the warlords of the time, really through the force of his own charisma. And he was also interested in the outside world. He had a vision for recreating Ethiopia, Abyssinia, as one of the great Christian civilizations of the world. He saw himself as an equal to Victoria, uh, Napoleon, all the great Christian powers of the world. And he wanted to reach out, re-establish contact with the outside world, you know, stretch Ethiopia's horizons as far as he could. But the thing is, if you flick through different eyewitness accounts and history books, there's also another image you get of Tuodros. A mad and cruel ruler. Western historians, they wanted to always paint a picture of this irrational, you know, barbaric African man. This is the voice of researcher and historian Eyob Dorillo, and he is right. Descriptions of this emperor Tawadros are varied, to say the least. You've got great ruler, ruthless ruler, tactical genius, vengeful. It is a lot. There's two sides of Tedros. So you have this picture that he was a very fair person if you didn't confront him or challenge him <laughs> uh, for, for his power. But the fact that there are conflicting interpretations of prominent black figures in history, for Eob, it's not exactly a surprise. You know, being a a young black man who grew up in London, uh, you don't see really anything positive about black history, let alone Ethiopia, which most of my friends, also Ethiopian friends at that time, we kind of wanted to block this out of our head. So we adopted ourselves into the culture, assimilated. Mm. Um, and of course, as we got older, or as I got older, I wanted to really uh, know where I come from. Tedros was, you know, it's a very important figure in Ethiopian history. So what is his view of, of Britain? I mean, we get a sense of what Britain's view of him is, but, but how does he view the British? So he saw the British, in honesty, as an ally, because he was. When he wrote letters to Victoria, he referred to Victoria as his sort of Christian sister. Why not? You know, he was an emperor, she was a queen, both leaders of uh, predominantly Christian civilizations. Yeah, his, his vision was full of hope and big dreams. Britain wasn't an enemy of Ethiopia. There was no colonial interest. So what goes wrong? So uh, the usual story, it's always that letter that was sent to Queen Victoria. Yes, all of this starts with a letter in an envelope. Tildress wrote a letter. This is the key letter to Queen Victoria offering an equal partnership, friendship, exchange of ambassadors, great dreams of 
of a, of a union between Christian powers and we can have one-on-one -on -one relationships, you know, to, the, to my fellow Christian queen. This letter went missing. It passed from desk to desk and eventually got filed. You can imagine a huge shelf of forgotten papers. So this was basically Teldris' great plan to reach out to Britain and other imperial powers. He wrote to France and, and others to build his great dream. And from his point of view, Britain couldn't even be bothered to reply. Throughout his reign, there is that characteristic of Tedros being very impatient and angry. It was triggered by that letter, that letter not being sent. He was furious, disappointed, and hugely paranoid. I mean, what's this sudden turn? You know, one day Britain is essentially making huge promises, and the next day they can't even be bothered to acknowledge him as an emperor, as an equal. Very soon, things start to sour. And suddenly all these British missionaries turn up, you know, saying, we want to convert you. And Ethiopia says, well, yeah, but we're, to what? You know, we're, we've been Christian longer than you have. Ethiopia has essentially been, had a Christian tradition since the third century, longer than Britain's Christian civilization by a long shot. And the missionaries say, yeah, yeah, but you're the wrong kind of Christian. Clearly you've, um, you, you know, your Christianity has gone wrong. You've inherited all these heresies. So the paranoia and the uh, anger and the frustration grows. This all collapses into disaster, and uh, Teodros, one by one, imprisons some of the missionaries, some of the adventurers, and finally Britain's ambassador. You've got the situation where Britain's consul is imprisoned by, in Britain's eyes, an upstart African monarch. Basically someone that they, from a civilization they knew nothing about, they assumed that they were superior to in every way, had dared to imprison Britain's representative on that spot. So, you know the story has big egos, but when does it become big bloodshed? You've got to put yourself in Britain's position. It's an ambitious imperial power that is most of all obsessed with keeping its hold over India. So Britain is desperate to have a win and to maintain its reputation because you know, essentially the British Empire was a big confidence trick. You know, they were in India with a few 10,000 people controlling a country of untold millions. How do they do that? Obviously, they can't do that by force of arms. They have to do that by um, reputation. They have to have a reputation of unassailable authority. And if, in their eyes, some African emperor can just take in the consul and imprison him without punishment, what does this say about Britain's authority? You know, if, if he can do it, other people can do it. And they realise that the only way they're going to vindicate their honour in their eyes and restore Britain's unassailable reputation is to basically beat this guy, go in there, bring their captives out, re-establish themselves as an unassailable power. You know, it was a huge expedition. Um, I think the estimation at the time was something like 10 million or over or more. So it was a big expedition that started from India. It took the British actually more than nine months to reach the Magdala Fort. I mean, they had like, I don't know how many, how many uh, elephants and, and, and foot soldiers, you know, from uh, India, also from Britain. And essentially march up into the highlands of Ethiopia as they make their way slowly towards the foothills of Magdala, which is Teodros' mountain fortress. By the time they got to Magdala, we, uh, from 
Some accounts we know that some of the soldiers abandoned Tedros. He was kind of left just a few to fight to the end. The British see Magdala in front of them, which is a stunning sight. It's a, an unassailable mountain fortress, thousands of feet of basalt rock ringed at the top by Tedros's headquarters and firing it. So they've basically got the, the latest kit, the latest uh, military technology, which is very important for this battle because the Ethiopians have a much older form of weaponry. They're setting up their positions at the foot of this mountain fortress when suddenly they notice these figures in the distance moving about on the horizon. And these puffs of smoke, which they hadn't been expecting on the horizon, and suddenly these missiles are firing down on them. Because this is the first confrontation between an imperial power and an African force where the African force fired back with its own artillery. Tordros had spent mm. months building up his own guns using the expertise of the Europeans that he'd befriended. So the British force found themselves under fire from this mountain fortress. Not just that, the land around the British forces was suddenly filled with thousands of Ethiopian warriors charging down the slopes towards them on horses, running behind them with rifles. You've got to see this as a clash of eras, a clash of civilizations. I mean, this was old school war, right? Where basically you would charge down in a massive romantic dash and overwhelm your enemies. It was a stunning sight, you know, they were, they were flowing red robes, guns, spears, charging down on the Brits, who just stood there in lines, watching them approach. Watching this impending wave, the British troops got into formation. Set up in lines, knelt down, stood up, and levelled their Snyder rifles at this sort of massive group of Ethiopian warriors coming towards them, and just started firing. And this is where the technology is all important, because essentially with these rifles, you could fire off two to five bullets a minute, which doesn't sound much today, but you're talking about a constant wave of bullets heading towards Ethiopian troops. In the end, the British were victorious. There's no other word for it. It was a massacre. You know, you can, you can be as romantic and daring and brave as you want, but if you're charging into a wall of bullets, you've got no chance. We're talking about a scene of carnage. Teldris had thrown the bulk of his army down a mountain at the British. And where is the famed Wadros throughout this battle? He was watching battle from the vantage point of Magdala and the lower hills and was clearly distraught. You know, he'd, he'd expected a swift, daring victory... But alas, for Tawadros, it was not to be. The British soldiers make it over the barricade and start roaming the city. They find his body lying on the ground with a bullet hole in his head. Emperor Tawadros took a gun, which was a gift from Queen Victoria. And so he took that gun with her engraving upon it which was a gift to him. And in a kind of poetic ending, he took his own life. The story of that being the pistol was told by a foreign correspondent who, in my opinion, used a bit of imagination to to spice up his reports. He was the source of that story about that being the pistol. It's not impossible because that pistol was there and it's now back again in the, the Royal Collection in London. 
Teldros did have, still have those pistols with him at the top of Magdala. So it's perfectly possible that the pistol he kept by his side was the one for Victoria, and then he used to shoot it himself. And at that point, the whole Magdala sort of loot begins. The Magdala Fortress is filled with stunning artefacts. Chalices, the crown, the crosses, uh, gold. All of these treasures fall in the hands of the British soldiers. There were large bodies of British troops moving over the mountain fortress, grabbing whatever they could. They ransacked huts. They ransacked the Empress treasury. Piles of manuscripts, gold crowns, crosses, church regalia, religious regalia, anything they could, they could get their hands on. So we are talking about extensive, extensive looting. And there they have an auction. It took three days. And the British Museum and um, other individuals end up acquiring a lot of the treasures and they come back to Britain. After the looting, they um, were left with the dilemma of what to do with Childress's family. Um, his wife and his son, Alamayu, who was a little boy of six or seven. Teldris's enemies were at the base of Magdala, you know, the other rival princes, the rival Rasses. So there was a feeling that they couldn't just leave. Uh, the boy would have been snapped up by the enemies, potentially killed. So there was an initial offer that we need to get at least them out of here as we leave. So they, um, they, they did a deal with the Queen. They said, we'll take you back with us. But before they left to go to Britain, they took a photo of that boy. There's a key picture of him standing outside Magdala after the battle, because there were photographers with British troops. And all I can say is it's a portrait of trauma. He, um, he's standing there, his, his face is slack, his eyes uh, looking out of the frame. Clearly, whatever is going on is going on deep inside. The only expression that you see on his face is just sadness and loss, this very melancholy look. You know, he grew up on that mountain fortress. His world was that universe. Those, that horizon was his fixed universe. Suddenly, these people arrive with terrifying weapons, blow up his world. His father kills himself. On the march back, his mother falls ill, probably from tuberculosis. She dies within a week or so of the retreat. It must have been overwhelming, you know, beyond overwhelming. Grief, trauma, and suddenly you're surrounded by essentially your father's enemies. So Alamayo is this captured prince, I guess you could say. Sometimes I have this view that he's also a prisoner. Whether he is a prisoner captured or saved, the one thing we do know is who was put in charge of Prince Alamahu after his mother died. A man who, honestly, once you've seen, you will never forget. Captain Tristram Speedy. Yeah, he looks like a pirate. He does look like a pirate, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he was kind of later referred to as a sort of ginger giant. He had massive red bushy beard, a big sort of red bushy hair. So he would wear a sort of turban-like thing on his head. He's wearing wearing the jewellery. He's got the bandana. And he really plays up this element. Sometimes he's got the whole shield and the lion uh, fur with him. He really plays up to the element. Do you know what he looks like? 
He looks like Ned, the Ned Kelly. And then if you imagine Ned Kelly dressed up like Jack Sparrow via Ethiopia, that's his seems to be his kind of get up. Yeah, effectively. Like he's quite a interesting character. I think that's I'm playing it a bit. Uh, my name is Catelyn Langford and I'm a curator and researcher specialising in photography. So Catelyn used to work at London's V&A or Victoria and Albert Museum and she's brought in just this mass of photos. So when I worked at the Royal Collection Trust, I came across a lot of albums that had his image in there. But then when you start looking across a lot of collections in the UK, you find his image across all of these collections. So that's how I sort of came across his story. Of all the pictures that Catelyn's laid out, there's this one that I just don't think I'll ever forget. It has Prince Alamayhu, again, six, seven years old, staring right into your soul. And then next to him, almost posed like a family photo, is this bearded, bandana-wearing, pirate-looking speedy. He's holding what is a very typical Abyssinian sword. And his eyes, they are fixed on the boy. And he's gazing towards a young Prince Alamehu. Who the hell is this guy? Six foot three, six foot two, six foot three. Bright red hair, a massive Victorian beard. He likes dressing up in Ethiopian warriors' clothes in the various bits and pieces that he's picked up on his travels. So I think if I saw him, I would find him overwhelming. You know, a a hugely charismatic, self-promoting figure. So how is it that the British choose this guy, Captain Speedy, out of everybody available to look after Prince Alamayhu? There are competing accounts. Speedy says that Alamayu's mother, on her deathbed, begged him to look after Alamayu after her death. Witnesses said, no, that's nonsense. He made that story up. What actually happened is that Speedy pestered the Queen in her last days, saying, I'm the guy to look after your son if anything happens. Don't worry about it. Then she dies, and over the next few days, it turns out that Speedy becomes named the guardian of Alamayu. The twist here is that Captain Speedy was no stranger to the family of Prince Alamayhu. He knew Tudorus before that point, and then he was sort of told to leave. They sort of effectively fell out. So then he leaves, and he comes back to Abyssinia during the campaign. And I just find it particularly strange that then he becomes the guardian of a child where he'd already fallen out with the father. So it's a really difficult narrative to know why he was so interested in becoming the guardian from my point of view, I, I see him as an adventurer who, you know, if he became the guardian of the lost prince of Abyssinia, he would become someone. Look, what, what's a grown man doing taking a small boy from Ethiopia and sleeping in the same bed as him, which is what happened, as documented? You know, if that happened in... Well, no, we, we shouldn't do today's rules with those rose rules, but he had a sort of strange fixation on the boy. What was it about? Shouldn't we be questioning that and asking questions of it? And clearly there have been eyebrows raised about that. I'm reluctant to go that far because that's the worst thing you can say about someone and there's no concrete proof. And maybe there, things change. We have different standards about how we look after a child. But essentially there's a big question mark over Speedy's involvement with Alamayu. In this instance, I think people thought that Captain Speedy was doing 
a good thing. He was caring for a child. He was uh, a benevolent sort of figure for this for this child, caring for him and and effectively as well. I would say, kind of civilizing him was also the notion that was coming up. People don't seem to to question it. Look, what we can establish, in my opinion, is that um, the boy didn't want to go, and um, and I don't believe that without his mother, he should have been taken. Period. It's just coincidence, isn't it? It's just coincidence. The mother dies, the father's killed himself, and they take this boy all the way back to England from Ethiopia because it's supposed to be better for him. That's just I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. But when Alamayhu and Speedy arrive in Britain, they become almost an immediate sensation. That's why there's all these photos of them, because they're famous. A hundred percent he becomes a celebrity. So people really want to see him. They're excited to see him. They want to purchase images of him. So these are carte de visites. It's It's sort of like halfway between, like, baseball collecting cards and a Polaroid. As soon as he arrives in the UK, you can see his outfits in these photos changing. He's now in breeches and bow ties and they comb his hair. But those eyes, they don't change. Like he's looking at something just beyond the frame that we can't see. They just show exactly how he was feeling and exactly, I think, you can look him in the eyes and sort of really gain a sense of his emotions. I see anger. I think essentially he was seen as a curiosity. To, to a Victorian eye, this was a, um, a figure out of a story. So there was a huge outpouring of slightly overdone sympathy. There was also the fact that he was the son of, a, in their eyes, a savage. We get an account where he is really not happy with people staring at him, so he's very conscious. People are obsessed with his lips, people are obsessed with his face. I think the overwhelming reception was certainly not hostility, but overweening attention. And he also got attention from the highest power in the empire, the Queen, Victoria. Victoria did show a lot of affection to him. You know, he was given all the privileges that wouldn't be given to anybody else. You know, he went to some good schools. He went to Cheltenham College and to Rugby School, which was, you know, among England's top private schools. He threw himself into his new life. He did his best at study. He threw himself into school sports. It's one of the incongruities, you know, this Ethiopian prince became a star of the cricket field. He played rugby. He played football. Some of the, There are a few glimpses you get of him later which break out of the um, romantic picture that, again, the, the Victorians forced on him. He was always throwing himself into things. And you can see some hints of that in the photographs. There is joy and there is energy and there is youthful exuberance. But the overwhelming thing that you'll see if you look at a succession of his photographs is of a tragic figure one who was clearly still suffering from the trauma that, as we all know, all know, stays with the person. Trauma doesn't just come and go. Eob, this might sound like a slightly blunt question, but do you regard what happened to the prince as theft? Do you think he was stolen? Well, stolen, it's, it's um, certainly he was a trophy. I'd rather use the word Murkonya, which in Amharic is a, uh, means captured. A captured prince. There's a lot of record of him being very melancholy, asking to go back to Ethiopia. After school, they they weren't quite sure what to do with him. 
The government had been paying Captain Speedy as a guardian, but after he turned 18, what was the prince to do? He had taken an interest in the military, but... It was felt that you you couldn't have a dark-skinned officer in the army um, lording it over white soldiers. So he couldn't have had a conventional job in the army. So they sent him to Sandhurst Military Training College, Officer Training College, where, as far as I can tell it, he was brutally bullied. Alamai was paranoid, wanting to go home. He felt that people were crowding around him, trying to poison him. We're talking about a real mental health crisis. You know, again, from my position, something was not right with him. One night, um, he went to the loo. This is the absurdity. This is the tragedy. I hate telling this story, but obviously in those days, loos were outside, right? And this was the winter. He went out to the toilet and by an account from his tutor, he fell asleep and he caught a chill of some sort. Some form of inflammation settled over his lungs. Um, He took to bed. A load of doctors came in. Queen Victoria sent her doctor and um, just one day just faded. He died in his bed in Headingley on the outskirts of Leeds, just short of his 19th birthday. For Lemsisay, the incompleteness, the indignity of Alamayhu's end has never sat well. I want to know how he died at 18, being a prince of uh, Ethiopia. I want to know why he was sent to Leeds once, once the government stopped paying Captain Speedy a weekly or monthly sum to look after him and to pay for his education, etc., So once that payment stopped, he was sent to the north of England. How is it that a prince became so cold that he died? You know, how did that happen? This is the the, the hardest thing to take. The the best you'd have hoped for Alamai was that he would have gone back to Ethiopia or have found a fulfilling life. The worst would have been, well, is what happened, which was an absurd, meaningless end at that age, you know, it's it's beyond terrible. And it does shock when you read a lot of the letters. It really shocks um, quite a lot of people. And, and I mean, it, almost all the newspapers covered his, the, the obituary at the time. So this is an excerpt from Queen Victoria's journal, and she writes, Very grieved and shocked to hear by telegram that good Alamehu passed away this morning. It is too sad all alone in a strange country, without a single person or relative belonging to him, so young and so good. His was no happy life, full of difficulties of every kind, and he was so sensitive, thinking people stared at him on account of his colour, that I fear he would never have been happy. Everyone is sorry. And this is what made Victoria decide uh, why he should be buried in Windsor. And interestingly enough, he's buried in, uh, in the same vault as Queen Elizabeth II. His funeral was inside St George's Chapel, where Prince Harry and Meghan got married, that place. His body was then taken and buried in what essentially catacombs outside the chapel, in a sort of bricked-in vault um, with a few other dignitaries. Victoria insisted a brass plaque be erected for the prince. The words? I was a stranger, and ye took me in. So now, 
now the bride has okay. arrived. Very pleasant. Meghan Markle wedding dress designed according to Kensington Palace by Claire Waite Keller. And those are the magnificent steps at the, the West Door. I was just one of the few people I who were watching the path that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's uh, wedding, their procession passed where Prince Alamayu's remains are still. Over the years, many Ethiopians at home and abroad have demanded the return of Prince Alamayu's body, including this woman. My name is Maaza Mengiste. I am a novelist. I was born in Ethiopia, uh, live in New York, and I'm currently based in Berlin. I heard about Prince Alamayu as a young adult. He didn't really have a choice. He, he was taken uh, and brought to a country, and he didn't want to stay there. And like everyone you've heard so far, as soon as Maza heard the story of this boy, what happened to him and how he ended up in Windsor, she couldn't quite shake it. Yeah, we're talking about human remains. We're talking about a human being. Uh, and if any of us have ever had anyone who has passed away, we understand the importance of where those remains are. Uh, we understand the importance of, of, of burial, of commemorating, of being able to stand on the ground uh, in front of a gravestone or a marker and mourn properly. Um, Prince Alamayu has not been mourned properly. He's been shoved into a crypt outside of a castle, of a chapel, in a place where he never wanted to be in the beginning. Who, who looks at him? You know, who acknowledges him? Um, and to have on that, in that area, that crypt where, where he's buried, the lines that, you know, when something about when I was hungry or when I was lost, you took me in. Like the level of arrogance is breathtaking. This person needs to be home. He needs to go home. Uh, and no plaque will change that. Ethiopia has been asking for the return of Prince Alamayu. In 2007, the Ethiopian government asked for the return of the prince's body, and as recently as this very year, Buckingham Palace has said no. People are still asking now. The reason the palace said no this time was that they said they had a responsibility to preserve the dignity of the departed. But if you go back over history, there's a whole range of reasons that have been given over the past. There have been so many excuses brought up to these requests. There have been excuses that uh, we won't know, for example, which bones are his. One of the early suggestions that we heard from the royal family is that as he's in a catacomb, it might be difficult to identify him. Which, on face value, seems like a pretty reasonable reason to not pull somebody up out of the ground. But on closer inspection... Alamayu lies in a very substantial oak coffin with his name on a very substantial metal plaque on the coffin. The, and there are plans of the catacombs, there are plans. This is, this is not a small churchyard, this is Windsor Castle, the main church in Windsor Castle. If there was the will, it would be a very simple matter to identify which coffin we're talking about. Uh, the, the royal family just doesn't want to go through the trouble. Uh, and this is 
this is for me um, part of a, a similar excuse that museums and uh, yeah, museums have have given about why they do not want to return looted items. Part of the reason is, well, they'll say is because it takes too much paperwork. It's too difficult. It's too labor intensive. It's too expensive. Uh, and yet the act of, of stealing it was done so easily, so cleanly, without paperwork. The truth is that most of us will never get to see Prince Alamayhu's final resting place. But you can still visit all of the other things that were looted up there on that fortress. All of these treasures fall in the hands of the British soldiers, and there they have an auction. The Magdala collection today largely lives in the British Museum. You can see Tawadros's shield wrapped in fur. There are stunning metal sculptures. And they didn't end up here in this museum by accident. You see, when those British forces came to put Emperor Tawadros in his place, this museum, they had a man on the inside. There was a, a representative there, and he came with money. Um, they intended to take as much as they could that was of value. Uh, that was already part of the planning. They were going to strip Ethiopia of uh, anything of value and take back to showcase One of the things that's always struck me when I step through the British Museum is just the sheer amount of stuff. And it's incredible. It's breathtaking. There's no question. But when faced with so much stuff, it almost flattens into nothing. But now, knowing what you know about the boy, it's hard not to see him in everything. And yet... The risk is to portray him as a victim, right? As a as a little boy who was constantly put upon and constantly tragic and constantly the lost prince and a hostage, whereas he, he had his own agency. You know, he, he threw himself into life. He took every opportunity that he was given. He wanted to do something with his life. The tragedy is that a lot of the opportunities were never given to him. But he was not a victim and he was not a piece of stolen plunder. He was a boy and a young man who could have done amazing things. Uh, but we'll never know, and that's that's the, that's the tragedy. When I look at Alamayo, I get this sense of this person that had so much potential, and you know that he could have been anything. You know, he would have been uh, a great ruler. He could have been anything. He is part of the history of Britain, but he has this unfinished story. This is the thing. It's as he becomes an adult that he dies. It's as he becomes an adult as he does, as he starts to articulate himself. He's a traumatised kid who's been stolen from his family, who's suffering from overt racism. Lem, you found your own story inside the story of Prince Alamehu. So after everything he's been through, everything you've been through. What does he actually mean to you as a person? That's a really good question. And the answer to me is that he was a foster child. 
Nobody was looking at his experience. He had no mother or father, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles. He was passed from person to person. And yet everybody seems to blame him at every point. And they, they did the same, tried to do the same to me. We need to question what these adults did to that boy. Until the lion tells the story, history will always be told by the hunter. You deserve to have your story told. Stuff the British Stole is produced by Leah Simone Bowen, Eunice Kim, Zoe Ferguson and myself. Sound design and mixing by Martin Peralta. The executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak for CBC Podcasts and Amrutha Sleep for ABCRN. Stuff the British Stole is a co-production of ABCRN and CBC Podcasts. 